Hello, welcome to the Middle East Forum's webcast and, um, and webinar and podcast series, good grief. I'm Cliff Smith, the Washington Project Director of the Middle East Forum, and today I have a very special guest in Professor Robert Kaufman of Pepperdine University. Hello, Professor Kaufman, how are you doing? Fine, how are you, Cliff? Doing great. Full disclosure, um, I am a former student of Dr. Kaufman, and he's also indirectly responsible for me working at the Middle East Forum. He brought Middle East Forum's um, President Daniel Pipes to teach at Pepperdine in 2007 when I was a student there. I took then Professor Pipes class and nine years later, it turned into a job at the Middle East Forum. Worked out pretty well. Professor Kaufman is an accomplished academic, has a PhD from Columbia University and a JD from Georgetown. He's the author of four books and countless articles. Um, he wrote the definitive biography of Senator Henry M. Scoop Jackson and has written several books about various doctrines that drive foreign policy in different presidential administrations. In other words, on what are the overarching goals and philosophies that drive their foreign policy decisions and how those fit into our large, larger political framework. So today we'll be discussing um, political, uh, that is conservative and liberal approaches to the Middle East um, in the past and discuss how these might apply to events going forward. I'll ask him some broad questions as well as perhaps a few questions that were raised by some of his writings. And we'll try to get to some questions from the audience in the end. Uh, anyhow, with that introduction, Professor, um, can you give us a brief take on what as you see as broad liberal and conservative approaches to the Middle East in the past, say, 40 years? Those approaches have evolved over time, Cliff. Uh, before the uh, new politics wing of the Vietnam War era took over the Democratic Party, uh, the, the Democratic Party was in some ways uh, much more proactive in the Middle East. And although both parties had a pro-Israel element, before 1968, I think there was more reservation about aligning with Israel and the Republican Party than the Democratic Party. Th that's changed substantially. Uh, there are several inflection points, one Reagan, two Carter. And now the meaning of liberal and conservative in the Middle East is such that the Republicans are the pro-Israel party and the Democrats are increasingly the anti-Israel party. And that's a fundamental change over the last 40 years. Within the Republican party, uh, since 1980, there were two main strains contending. One was to look at the Middle East through the lens of political realism with Israel accepted, largely depreciating uh, any type of regime change as a goal because of the conditions in the Middle East. Uh, that changed under Bush 43. Uh, whatever the merits thereof with uh, Iraq turning out uh, not the way the second Bush administration intended, there's now a high degree of convergence among Republicans about what we should do in the Middle East, where it ranks on our priorities, who our friends are, who our associates are. And there's a consensus in the Republican Party that enemy number one is Iran and the most reliable partner is Israel. So there's really a clarity in the Republican Party today that wasn't always the case over the last 40 years on what our orientation toward the Middle East ought to be. And how do you, and what is the corollary democratic view of that, would you say? 
I think that the Democratic Party's default position on the Middle East is on last very close to Obama's. Uh, instead of Iran being the major problem in the region, it's the Arab-Israeli conflict and the unspoken premise, sometimes it is spoken of an increasing number of Democrats from the progressive left, is that Israel is the problem. And within the Democratic Party, uh, almost exhibiting the definition of insanity attributed to Einstein, it isn't but it's attributed to him. Biden has returned to the insanity of viewing Iran as a possible uh, partner to flip in the Middle East with the Iran nuclear deal as the centerpiece of that misguided strategy. So on Iran and uh, Israel, uh, there's a fundamental difference. And there's also a fundamental difference, Cliff, on domestic policy that bears significantly on the Middle East, namely energy policy. Especially under Trump, the Republicans are the party committed to unleashing the free market to exploit the full extent possible our vast reservoir of energy, which under the Trump administration literally had put us on the cusp of being a world's energy superpower. Uh, the Biden administration has cast that away in my view by returning to Obama's priorities of the Green New Deal and climate change, the consequence of which is that it has paradoxically made us much more dependent on Middle Eastern regimes that we don't want to be dependent on because we don't have the luxury that we had had by the end of the Trump administration of energy independence. That's not just a problem for the Middle East cliff. It's one of the problems dealing with uh, Putin right now. Then inexplicably, um, Biden has filled Putin's coffers, Iranian coffers, and actually hurt the environment because if you compare the, the policies, the green policies of the Republicans at their caricatured worst versus Russia and Iran, uh, there is no logic other than blind ideology in sacrificing energy independence on multiple fronts. And that's a fundamental difference. One area I would notice some, I, I agree with your broad um, way of framing this. Uh, one thing that I would see that would seem to be somewhat of an outlier to me is you could get, you could sort of debate um, how Democratic Republican administrations have handled this, but um, in terms of, especially in terms of Congress, one outlier is that, and I think this is demonstrably true, especially the past few years, is that Democrats have been much more willing to criticize um, Turkey and, and Erdogan's move to authoritarianism towards a more Islamist direction away from uh, more secular, uh, secular um, governance, um, you know, towards more um, supporting terrorist networks and so on and so forth. Um, Trump seemed to like Erdogan. Um, Obama, to a certain degree, did too. I think Trump was a little bit more so. Um, cert but certainly from a congressional point of view, it's, I mean, it's, I would say, demonstrably true that Democrats have been much harder on Turkey than Republicans have been. What do you think is driving that? One, I think that's true rhetorically, although I push back a bit, Cliff, on the Obama. Um, in my book on Obama, uh, Obama said that Erdogan, I quote, and it comes from Fareed Zakaria, not Fox, is my favorite leader. And remember that when Obama 
went abroad for his infamous apology tour at the beginning of his presidency, he, he began with, with Turkey. Um, I actually think uh, if there's teeth to the, uh, the democratic disdain for Turkey, and I think it's more rhetorical than real, uh, I, I wrote a piece where I, I argued, and there were pe people from the former Bush administration, 43, like Jed Babin making this case, that Turkey does not belong in NATO. It's no longer an ally, it's an adversary. Uh, Victor Davis Hanson makes that same case. And, and for Trump, I think uh, this was one of the deficiencies of his otherwise relatively successful policy in the Middle East compared to his predecessor. He uh, downplayed the significance of regime type and ideology to an excessive extent. And in that case, he saw Turkey as a counterweight rather than evaluating Turkey based on how its internal dynamics would affect its external behavior. Turkey's no longer an ally by my estimation. And to the extent that the Democrats really mean that, rather than just virtue signaling, I'd be delighted, but I'm skeptical. Yeah, uh, I, I think it's the, how the Biden administration's handling it is an open question. Um, it's, uh, that's, you got a point there. I would definitely agree with you. Um, I will um, note one thing, um, um, just since we're talking about Obama's foreign policy for the time being, uh, it was a source of pride for me that in your book on um, Obama's doctrine, you footnote an article I wrote uh, con concerning um, President Sisi after he toppled the Muslim Brotherhood former president. Uh, I called it dictatorships and double standards redux, and I criticized the Obama administration for removing foreign aid from Egypt um, at the moment that Sisi overthrew Mohamed Morsi. Um, but I wondered if you wanted to discuss for a second sort of how the dictatorships and double standards way of looking at things um, works in the context of the Middle East. Well, it has great power in the Middle East. Uh, people have misunderstood that article as uh, originally Gene Kirkpatrick expressing indifference to freedom. It was absolutely the opposite. Her case was that when there is not a viable democratic alternative, and in the Middle East, that's been exceedingly rare, uh, an authoritarian regime that is pro-American or at least not anti-American is the lesser moral and geopolitical evil, not only in the immediate case, but also in the long term, these regimes have the capacity to reform, witness South Korea's evolution or Taiwan, whereas these left-wing regimes have to collapse and there's no plausible theory of reform. And the Obama administration's uh, misguided policy toward Egypt almost replicated Carter's toward Iran, uh, misreading the situation and misreading the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, Obama did not get, and I'm not sure he cared, uh, whether uh, the election in Egypt that yielded the Muslim Brotherhood was like Nazi Germany in 1932, one election, one time for the purpose of eliminating elections 
forevermore. And that framework, Cliff, especially when uh, the Bush doctrine's ambitious uh, agenda for transforming the Middle East proved a bridge too far, I think as much based on our lack of political will, but that's water under the bridge. That way of looking at things, the lesser of evil, is uh, especially appropriate in the Middle East, where for the time being Israel accepted, uh, the freedom option is going to be rather limited. And I think that that logic of yours that uh, recaptures Gene Kirkpatrick and applies it compellingly to the situation in the 21st century explains things such as the Abraham Accords. And it also explains why, despite understandable misgivings, uh, Saudi Arabia right now is the lesser evil uh, to Iran. And we should applaud the Abraham Accords and the quasi rapprochement between Saudi Arabia and Israel rather than deplore it based on the logic of your essay, uh, borrowing from Kirkpatrick and the logic of the lesser evil. John Kennedy pretty very well with regard to the Dominican Republic. Uh, he said his democracy was his first choice, but he'd take a dictator if the more likely outcome of the choice before him was the third choice of an anti-American pro-Soviet totalitarian. And uh, I think you captured that logic well, and that logic applies with greater salience probably than any other region in the world to the Middle East. Um. You touched on something I was going to ask you about next, and that is the Abraham Accords. I was uh, looking through some of your old um, writings, and of course, in your book on Scoop Jackson, you discuss um, sort of the the um, you had you had Arabists that saw Israel as the problem, as you mentioned earlier, and you you mentioned that while they had different tactical approaches, both Nixon and Kissinger, um, as well as Jackson. Um, basically thought that the, if I read you correctly, that, you know, the U.S. by being pro-Israel could actually gain greater benefits in the region and that Israel was a more useful ally than a problem. And it was Carter, more or less, that wanted to make a full land for peace deals, a comprehensive settlement um, in a way that uh, was ended up being dashed with Egypt making peace with Israel under Carter, ironically. Um, but there was a, but so, my question is, is kind of, is the Abraham Accords you've recently seen, and as you mentioned, the de facto um, um, behind the scenes collaboration between Israel and Saudi Arabia, is that sort of the end result of this debate, of that side winning this debate? And also, how have liberal and conservative policy trends made that more difficult in the past few decades? Or easier? I would see it, Cliff, just a little bit differently. I wouldn't. Uh, equate Nixon and Kissinger uh, with the Trump administration uh, on, on the issue of the link between Israel and Middle East peace. Uh, Nixon did have what I call an instrumental view of Israel in that uh, he believed that a pro-American Israel that was successful on the battlefield uh, was an essential uh, ally or quasi-ally in the Cold War, uh, but he, he didn't have a deep emotional commitment to Israel. And also Nixon's uh, defense of Israel in many ways was conditional on the conditions 
of the of the Cold War. So Nixon and and Kissinger, Kissinger, I think, out of pessimism, and Nixon out of strategic calculation, accepted the basic framework of a two-state solution and uh, saw Israel uh, for the time being uh, as in America's interest. But Nixon would have been willing, I think wrongly to put in a different circumstance, a lot more pressure on Israel in a post-Cold War era. Trump uh, is, is a fundamental distinction that emanates from Reagan, but Reagan didn't um, bring it to full uh, fruition. Trump has abandoned the idea of uh, a disinterested mediator. What Trump is saying, Israel is our ally and our priority vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, the Palestinians and other entities in the region. And the region has to get used to it. And what Trump did was call the bluff of generations of Arabs who warned that uh, if you move the capital to Jerusalem, if you didn't focus on the Palestinians as the key variable of stability, you'd have absolute chaos. And what, what's happened is it is the reverse, that, that by taking Jerusalem off the table until Biden, I think, will put it on again, it's snatching defeat from the jaws of victory, uh, everybody adjusted to the reality rather than uh, the dire prognostications of the Arabs, which was actually their policy preference in the thin veil of their counterfeit version of necessity. So I, I see Trump's move to align the United States with Israel um, as a fundamental shift in the type of framework we pursued during the Cold War. Not only fundamental, uh, I think Trump for all of his uh, warts deserves tremendous credit for that. Let me add too that Trump's decision to move the embassy in Jerusalem, in my view, was a reverse inflection point. It was the opposite of Obama's cave-in in Syria. It was the opposite of uh, Biden's cave-in in Afghanistan. By fulfilling that promise, I think Trump sent a signal and a salutary one to the rest of the world that he meant what he said and said what he meant. And I do think that's one of the reasons for all of the uh, loose rhetoric of his on Putin, that uh, Putin didn't try what he's trying now. And China has did not fly more than 200 sorties into Taiwanese airspace because Trump's move of the embassy to Jerusalem had positive resonance, not only in the Middle East, uh, but in other regions, just as the Obama-Biden cave-ins have had negative repercussions, not just regionally, but globally. All right. Um, we'll ask one more question, then we'll get to audience questions. So if anybody wants to ask a question, go ahead and type it into the Q&A box. We already have a few, um, but we can get some more. Um, one other thing that I'll mention about something you wrote once. You, um, of course, have been very outspoken that you're a big admirer of Ronald Reagan. However, you did critique his judgment on certain um, issues related to terrorists and terrorist networks. Um, the, um, his actions in Lebanon, for example, um, you, uh, you wrote, um, helped us get to the point where certain of our enemies, um, bin Laden and so on, saw us as the great but decadent Satan that could you know, tuck its tail and leave quickly. Um, you, and of course, you criticized uh, Clinton for similar failures, such as in Somalia, doing similar things. 
Um, do you think that um, Reagan's approach differed materially from Clinton's? Were these like um, momentary um, lapses in judgment or is this part of a broader misunderstanding that both of them shared? I think the context is different, which makes Reagan um, not correct, but his overall approach more successful. Really, Cliff, based on the logic of, of your essay on CC, na namely that uh, when Reagan became president, the Soviet Union was the main threat. Europe was the main theater. East Asia ranked second, and the Middle East third, and any type of... Um, freedom agenda was way uh, back on the list. And, and while uh, I think sentimentality intervened on Reagan's view of terror, uh, his, uh, the substance of his administration's policy toward the Iran-Iraq war, which uh, Henry Kissinger expressed very well, uh, it's a shame both sides didn't, couldn't lose, uh, basically was a correct framework with uh, terror is the neg negative asterisk where his sentimentality uh, overwhelmed what otherwise I think was a strong, sound strategic judgment under the circumstances. President Clinton had more discretion uh, because at, at the end of the Cold War, uh, no thanks to him, he inherited a unipolar decade that gave him far more leeway um, not to make the types of misjudgments that Reagan made. Well, when Reagan pulled out of Lebanon, I, I think that that had negative repercussions the way it happened. He had other major things on the table, the deployment of the Euro missiles, uh, SDI, that were much more fundamental. Um, Clinton's uh, Somalia episode and other things um, I think were more discretionary, but that said, uh, I think that both parties, uh, as with China, uh, have some responsibility in, in making mistakes previously that misread the dynamic and made it worse. Now to on to audience questions. Uh, we have quite a few. Um, I'll ask two at the same time because I think they're interrelated. Michael Steinman asks, what is Biden's motivation for a treaty with Iran, um, quite similar to the one prior under Obama? And William Wolf asks, it seems like Israel will have to destroy Iran's ability to make atomic weapons. Why did they not do so while Trump was still in office? So, I mean, I think that there, you can feel free to speak to either of those, but there's kind of an overarching question here. And that is basically, you know, sort of, where are we on a new Iran deal? And sort of how have the different administrations approaches to Iran Sort of gotten us where we are, and also how they have reacted to it. In other words, you know, how have the Israelis acted and um, the Iran acted to those policies that got us where we are? Although it's um, hard to believe based on objective evidence, uh, and uh, Henry Kissinger criticized the analogy uh, in a joint article with George Schultz opposing the Obama Iran deal. The Obama administration evidently believed that they could flip Iran uh, the way Nixon and Kissinger flipped China. And, and Obama's policy toward Iran that culminated in this Iran deal, which I call not flatteringly in an editorial I wrote, uh, Obama's Munich, uh, was part of a policy 
where Obama came to office believing that the fundamental problem in the world was what J. William Fulbright called the arrogance of American power. So consider the, the outreach to Iran, the same as his reset with Russia, uh, his uh, embrace of China's rise, uh, and his belief that we, and by extension, our allies had been the problem. And so Obama's view, which Biden has revived, is that uh, this is the best mechanism to to, to recalibrate one of their favorite words, the uh, political alignments in the Middle East uh, in our favor. I, I think that was uh, delusional then and delusional now, but if you look at the Biden administration with uh, some, some uh, positive distinction, the equivalent of being you know, tougher than Obama is like being the best looking person in the physics department, Biden's provisional national security statement at least admitted that China was a competitor, Obama would never admit it. Um, this is Obama 2.0. And the mentality on Iran, uh, if I may, uh, reflects uh, his and Obama's and his core constituencies uh, view on China. Um, President Obama's presidential memoirs, which I read for professional reason as as punishment, uh, said on page 339, and this is published in November of 2020, uh, even after COVID, Obama said, I don't regard China as a threat and it will become one only if we overreact to it. This mentality is, uh, with some honorable exceptions, Rush Doshi, a fine book on China, this general attitude is pervasive in general, and it affects their calculation of the Iran deal. So I, if you want to understand Biden on Iran, I, I think the, the shortcut to it is it's the same logic of Obama's. It's Obama 2.0 on that issue. And do you, think, do you have any answer to why Israel? Um, yeah. yeah, it's not an easy thing to do. Uh, yeah. they, if you look at the geography of Iran, the, the, the sites, the Zagros mountain range, the type of weapons that, that you need, Israel uh, would do that only in desperation. And, and the most reliable way to do it is, is to have the United States do it. I'm not saying that if I were an Israeli leader, I would uh, rule out the, the possibility, but it would be a more dire calculation because of A, the difficulty of doing it, and B, um, it's only the United States that has the array of capabilities that would have a, uh, a chance really to degrade for a significant period of time, Iran's nuclear capability. Um, Henry Mahan asks, um, these discussions on foreign policy are terribly important. The American public seems to have no interest on the subject. Can international issues be more made more pressing for Americans? And I will add to that. The interesting thing in that is given, I think there is some truth to what he's saying. Why do you think that um, administration seems so touchy about their bases view on foreign policy, given that I would argue Americans don't vote that much on foreign policy? Well, unlike the 1980s, uh, Cliff, uh, the progressives are, are, are a problem. Um, 
and the fundamental problem. But as Lincoln said, quoting a, another fellow well-known Jesus, a house divided against itself can't stand. Even the Republican Party, which is the healthier of the two parties when it comes to conservative internationalism in general and applied to the Middle East, uh, not all as well. There is a uh, significant vocal, um, I'd say, uh, quasi-isolationist way. Not the substance of Trump's policy, but some, some the tone of it. Uh, the, uh, the Tucker Carlson's and the Jesse Waters uh, of the world. Um, this more applies to Ukraine and Europe. They have their head in an area associated with a colonoscopy when it comes to America's global responsibility and their sanguine assumption that history is demolished, that Europeans or East Asians without us uh, have the capability, and in Europe's case, the will, to form an effective counterbalancing coalition. So, so there is a deep problem that I think is in both parties, with the Democrats having a much more severe, pervasive variant of it, um, that has affected us. Uh, one of the problems we have right now, and your questioner is right, is uh, the greatest enemy uh, in many ways is ourselves. Uh, the, our enemies look at us. We can't defend our borders or won't. Our cities are descending into Habesian chaos where life is nasty, solitary, brutish, and short. We've sacrificed being an energy superpower, uh, snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. Uh, we've cut the defense budget at the very time when as uh, the fine uh, scholar and a commentator, Walter Russell Mead, we have to spend at least 4% on the G, uh, defense on the GDP. Highly uh, achievable, easily bearable. Uh, it's freedom insurance. And yet there seems to be a deep reluctance to do that. And uh, that problem is uh, not just the Democrats, but also uh, some dynamics in the Republican party as well. So. My, my question, I wrote an essay on this, on COVID, will China win? With COVID, so far they have. And what's really shocking is that in the past, uh, something like a, a weaponization of COVID that is killed by more people in the United States than the Civil War, our most destructive war in history, uh, usually these inflection points have roused us from our slumber. The sinking of the Maine, uh, German U-boat warfare, Pearl Harbor, the Czech coup of 1948 with uh, Maserak, Maser, Jan Maserak being defenestrated in Prague, uh, thrown out of the 17th story of, of, of a building in Prague. 9-11, they've galvanized us. What's really chilling, and I think your uh, questioner is on to something, is that Look at the election of 2020. Uh, there was almost no focus on the gathering danger of China, which is our greatest existential threat. And this lack of concern has extended to Ukraine and, and also to Iran. It's, it's, it's narcissism, it's dangerous. And I wonder what it will take. Uh, I, I have a piece coming out, I hope, for Victor Davis Hansen 
hoping and wondering whether this announcement of the equivalent of a Sino-Russian alliance will shock us into uh, strategic and moral sanity. I'm wondering what it will take. And I think um, if I may take the liberties of your fine questioner, I'm hoping as he's hoping that we finally reached what uh, I would call the Popeye the Sailor moment uh, when we've had all we can stand, we can't stand anymore. And we come out with the uh, metaphorical can of spinach. Uh, it can't help. It can't happen a moment too soon. And what I worry about is that we are in, we have three more years of Biden. And I see at least the hope in the Republican Party to galvanize us to the urgency of conservative internationalism with all its implications. But I see no corrective mechanism. And I hope I'm wrong in the Democratic Party. There, there are no Scoop Jacksons, Pat Moynihan's, Fritz Hollings, uh, the types of Democrats, Sam Nunn, that in the past uh, were the material for an effective bipartisan consensus. And with that, I think we'll have to go. We're already running over time. Thank you very much for joining us, Professor. And thank Thanks you. For having all, me, Thanks for all of our viewers. And uh, you can join us next week for more. Um, talk to you all later. Thanks again.